Hello, hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Lavender. And I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr., today on the Hudson Mo. And first of all, I want to say welcome, Albany, Troy, Schenectady, and all of our listeners in the Capital Region. Okay. Um, as I said, I'm your host. I'm H. Bosch Jr. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's report on the newly released chemical recycling, a dangerous deception report. Then Mr. Willie Terry tells us all about the Troy NAACP branch Freedom Fund Breakfast. Later on, we dive into the archives to get a story about systemic racism in medicine. After that, our very own Andrea Cometh takes us on a tour of the Human Melville's house. Finally, we talk with Laura Brown, PT, who owns the Capital Region Therapeutic Massage Center. But first, here's some rapid headlines. The Times Union reports that parents and legal experts told a state Senate hearing Wednesday that New York's family court system is, quote, dehumanizing unquote, especially for the many poor or marginalized families dealing with it. Calls for overhauling the court system have swelled in recent years amid a nationwide re-examination of family separation and child removal, often driven by poverty or mental health issues that many experts have said can cause lasting trauma for children into their adulthood. Advocate, advocates say that the family court system often fails to provide families with needed resources. The state attorney general's office has obtained two settlements with Uber and Lyft for $328 million to solve a multi-year investigation where the rideshare companies cheated thousands of drivers out of hundreds of millions of dollars and prevented them from receiving benefits they were entitled to under the New York State labor laws. The city of Albany will pay nearly half a million dollars to install protective netting on two sides of the central warehouse this month after masonry fell from the 11-story building. The company that owns the building, CW Skyway LLC, will be billed for the work, though they do not believe it is necessary. Daylight saving times ends Sunday, November 5th, which means it's time to, guess what, set back the clocks an hour. Hey, do we lose sleep or gain? That's what's important to me. But anyway, that's <laughs> it for headlines. Okay. I think we gain sleep. Uh, but any case, for those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine listener-supported radio that built community in Troy and the surrounding capital re region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or give us a call at 518-272-2390. Mark Dunley, uh, attended a press conference from Beyond Plastics and IPEN, the International Pollutants Elimination Network, to announce their report, Chemical Recycling, a Dangerous Deception, 
You will hear from Judith Enk of Beyond Plastics and Lee Bell, IP and Science Policy Advisor and the lead author of the report. Beyond Plastics and the International Pollutants Elimination Network, or IPEN, released Chemical Recycling, a Dangerous Deception, a critical examination of the technology's long history of failure and the threat it poses to the environment, human health, and environmental justice. The report precedes the upcoming United Nations International Plastic Treaty Talks in Nairobi, Kenya, November 13th to 19th. Chemical recycling refers to a set of technologies that attempt to melt and boil waste plastic down to gases, chemicals, oil, tars, and waxes, and inevitably creates toxic substances. It is rarely successful in turning old plastic into new plastic. While industry promotes chemical recycling as a solution to the plastic crisis, the report points out that only 11 chemical recycling facilities are constructed in the United States, combined they process just a tiny fraction of the nation's plastic waste. We hear from Judith Ank of Beyond Plastic and Lee Bell, the IPN Science Policy Advisor, who is the lead author. We're going to start with Judith Ank. Judith is the founder and president of Beyond Plastics. Prior to this, she was appointed by President Obama to serve as EPA Regional Administrator. This is a comprehensive report. Our research shows that chemical recycling is more of a marketing and lobbying tactic by the petrochemical industry than an actual solution to the problem of plastic waste. This is a very timely report because the third meeting of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee to develop an international plastics treaty will take place very soon from November 13th to 19th in Nairobi, Kenya. Currently, the draft treaty does not allow for chemical recycling as a solution, which is wise. But we know that the plastics, chemical, and fossil fuel companies will be working overtime to get chemical recycling included in the treaty. And unfortunately, there is not clarity on the United States' position on this issue. As plastic production has skyrocketed over the past five decades, We've witnessed a parallel increase in environmental challenges. The World Economic Forum predicts that unless plastic reduction policies are put in place, plastic pollution will triple by 2060. Plastic pollution and production facilities, waste incinerators, landfills are often put in low-income communities and or communities of color, making plastics a very important environmental justice issue. Microplastics, which are tiny little pieces of plastic, have been found everywhere, including the highest of mountains, the deepest parts of the ocean. Microplastics have also been found in our human bodies. The plastics industry knows that it has a big problem, and they've spent decades deceiving the public into thinking that plastic recycling is the answer, and it knows it's not. Plastics recycling in the U.S. has been an abysmal failure. I want to emphasize we should keep recycling metal, paper, glass, cardboard, compost, yard waste, and food waste. But plastics recycling has been an abysmal failure, most recently achieving only a 5 to 6% plastic recycling rate. And that's because there are just too many different plastic polymers, 
thousands of different chemical additives and many different colorants that have prevented conventional plastics recycling from ever succeeding. Similar problems plague chemical recycling. The plastics industry has known all along that more than 90% of plastics are not recyclable, but they've spent millions in advertising saying just the opposite. They are finally acknowledging that plastics recycling has been a failure, and now they are pushing chemical recycling, yet another false solution that will not deal with a significant amount of plastic waste. The plastics industry has launched a lobby. We're talking today with Zan promoting what it calls advanced recycling. It is not advanced and it is not recycling. Companies claim this approach can turn plastic waste into new plastic. Once again, they are wrong. This new report explains in detail the problems with chemical recycling. So what is chemical recycling? This refers to a set of technologies or processes that attempt to use heat, pressure, and or solvents to break down plastic into gases, chemicals, oils, tars, or waxes. It often produces toxic substances as byproducts. Most common are pyrolysis and gasification, which primarily turn plastic waste into fuel. There are a number of serious proposals around the country to reduce plastics. Extended producer responsibility, EPR, all of these policies can move us closer to solving the problem by reducing the amount of plastic produced. At this point, I'd like to introduce Lee Bell, a technical and policy advisor at International Pollutants Elimination Network. I'm calling in from uh, Geneva in Switzerland, uh, where I'm taking part in negotiations on the fifth uh, conference of the parties on the Minamata Convention of Mercury. I'd just like to say that our report uh, produced by IPEN and by Beyond Plastics is a comprehensive review of chemical recycling of plastic waste. It looks at decades of evidence where we found that chemical recycling has never been uh, economically or environmentally safe way to manage plastic waste. Chemical recycling will not help to resolve the plastics crisis. A recent report by the Nordic Council, the official interparliamentary body, found that in the best possible case scenario, chemical recycling would only worldwide uh, process about 3% of plastic waste projected to be generated in 2040. It's around 14 million tonnes. It's a drop in the ocean compared to the hundreds of millions of tonnes uh, that will be produced in 2040. And further, the question, uh, the report questioned whether using this technology would even be worthwhile uh, given the massive amounts of toxic waste produced by chemical recycling and the other environmental problems associated with the technology. Uh, to summarise the key findings, we found that first, because plastics are made with toxic chemicals, the products and the waste retain these chemicals. And when released, these chemicals pose threats to our health and to the environment. This is especially harmful in environmental justice communities uh, who already bear a disproportionate burden of risk from other uh, industrial facilities and emissions and where chemical recycling operations are often located or planned to be located. Secondly, Chemical recycling produces very few useful products while creating very large amounts of toxic waste. Plastic waste that's collected for chemical recycling will mostly come out uh, of the processes as either hazardous waste, emissions, 
or contaminated oils such as pyrolysis oils that require a great deal of extra energy and cleanup uh, to uh, even uh, begin to make them suitable for use in plastics production. And that means more energy use and even more uh, hazardous waste materials produced. Instead of solving the toxic the waste problem, the plastic waste problem, chemical recycling creates a new, more toxic waste problem, and that toxic waste will usually either be burned uh, or landfilled, uh, taking us around in that disposal circle. Thirdly, chemical recycling contributes to climate change, uh, and it is an energy-intensive, inefficient technology. Uh, and in fact, a US uh, government research group found that chemical recycling can create as much as a hundred times more damaging climate and environment impacts uh, than existing virgin plastic production, which is saying something. And finally, the vast majority uh, of the products from chemical recycling are low-grade uh, toxic plastic fuels. Uh, and according to international standards, uh, turning plastic waste into fuel is not actually considered recycling. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not classified as recycling at all. So uh, international experts have also uh, recently at the Basel Convention on Hazardous Waste Negotiations debated chemical recycling for several years, uh, and they rejected chemical recycling uh, as an environmentally sound management technology for plastic waste. Uh, and these are some of the world experts uh, gathered to negotiate these issues in depth. For these reasons, our report finds that uh, the industry hype around chemical recycling uh, should not be considered uh, is a dangerous deception and chemical recycling should not be considered in plans for resolving the plastic crisis. Governments really should instead focus on uh, solutions that promote significant reductions in plastic production and innovation using safer materials. Uh, Judith will speak uh, a bit more uh, to those issues after we hear from Jennifer, uh, who speaks specifically to the US case studies. Thank you. This has been Mark Dunley for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. To find the report and more information, go to beyondplastics.org. On Saturday, October 7th, 2023, Hudson Mohawk Magazine roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended the Troy, N, uh, Troy, Troy NAACP Branch Freedom Fund Breakfast at the Italian Community Center in Troy. The guest speaker at the breakfast was Dr. Jennifer Burns, Ph.D. and Professor of History at SUNY Albany. Willie recorded her speech, and this is a part four of a four-part series. As some of you may know, Robert C. Kelly. Um, his son is George Vidal Kelly. Mm -hmm. You know, George Vidal. Mm -hmm. He grew up in Troy. He first attended RPI, and it didn't fit for him, so he went to Cornell University. University. While in Cornell, he helped found the first black Greek letter fraternity, the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. Proud member of Fifth Avenue Ladies Eye Church. Yes, he is. Come into that. <laughs> Began going back to church. At the time, he will also be immersed in his father's friends and new friends, Reverend James N. Bodie, Reverend Jeremiah R.B. Smith of the Liberty Street Presbyterian Church, Reverend Harvey White, pastor of the AME, Zion Church at the time. He and others are going to help to establish the Troy Colored Citizens Advancement Club, which is really the precursor of the NAACP after 
the Civil War. Mm -hmm. They made friends with W.E.B. Du Bois, Walter Wright of the original NAACP that we learned about out of the Niagara Movement. They brought those men to this city. They established a branch here that combines a non-denominational, but connected through all of the churches movement for black civil rights in the North. And I think it's important that we pay attention to that because we think often of the South as the place where Jim Crow was destroying people's lives. But these black pastors in Troy knew that there should be betterment, there should be uplift, there should be equitable housing, there should be integrated schools, there should be youth organizations, all of the things that their forebearers had advocated for and had organized before the Civil War <coughs> is what they reintroduced after. Now, there's a lot of names that I could list here. And I struggle with this because one of the things that I wanted to do as I was growing up and this, this nagging feeling of where are all the black people, right? And, and how did they walk the streets and what did they do where I come from? Right? How do I not name them? Right? When we get closer to the 1960s, I just want to name a few of the organizations because I know in naming people, I'm gonna leave vital people out. Mm. Okay. And so, one of the shout outs that I'd like to give for the youth who become the leaders in the 20th century is to the Girls Versatile Club. You remember them? You are a versatile club. The Versatile Club was founded in 1931. And it was really advised by Hardy D. White of the AME Church, but it combined all of the black churches. So young women in the three black churches in the area that were big, including <clears throat> Bethel Baptist, that was founded later in the 1930s. And their goal was to perform social, educational, and re religious work. Right. They were responsible for bringing black musicians to the area, including Duke Ellington. They also brought back former black Trojans who had gone out in the world and done a number of different things at annual luncheons. This included Dr. Dorothy Brown, who in 1964 came. She was the guest speaker at an annual luncheon, and it helped to initiate scholarships for black students to continue going to college and support themselves. And the Versatile Club did many other things as well. The other organizations that come out of this movement at the time are the United Negro Federation and Negro Clubs. This was a united effort of bringing together Club Embassy Inc., the Fellow Crafter Club, the Happy Hour Social Club. This is Troy, after all. The Toppers Social Club. All right. <laughs> and the Pleasant Valley Conservation Club from Schenectady. 
And this club really touched me when I learned about it, this kind of federation of Negro clubs. And it did so because it reminded me of another one that was founded in the 1830s in Troy. And that was the Union Society, which was black men and women in the city in the 1830s who said they wanted to work with folks from Lansingburg, from Albany, from Schenectady, from Avril Park, a union society for the cause of civil rights and abolition. And so here we are again, right, just 100 plus years later, where those leaders in Troy, their children and their grandchildren are organizing those organizations and coming together, because much of their membership, just like before the Civil War, overlapped. Community. There was also a Troy Commission on Human Rights. Do I need to name some people or no? We, we remember some of us in this room? Nanny Goldsberry. In 1968, she and the Troy Commission on Human Rights had a series of events and lectures. It was called Civil Rights in You. They were held in Lansingburg. Reverend Stanley, James Lockhart, Faith Evans, and Nanny Goldsberry included different topics, and the titles were Segregation Northern Style. It looked at urban renewal, low-income housing, rent control, job discrimination in the city of Troy. The other title was Jim Crow in Perspective. And this one I found some notes on, which is really interesting, because what it did was talk about, or what was discussed, was the Great Migration and people like Reverend Stinney. Mm -hmm. And his wife, Ethel, who were part of the early Great Migration into Troy in the 1930s. And then they organized bus rides from here to the south to help people escape Jim Crow violence and lynching in South Carolina. They did many other things. He's a member of the NAACP, too. Right? Another one of the titles was Our Country, Too. And that touched me, because I thought, you're right, that history book I'm reading in school, right? This is my country, too. And I want to see myself in it. And I want to see people from where I come from, and people who look like me, and people who have to fight some of the same fights, represented in it. So as I wrap up here, I want to bring us back to Hannah for a second. Because Hannah had said, I've been praying to somebody. I've been praying that somebody would come along and find out about me and that the families among them who knew me know where I am. And I think about this quote a lot because I hope that I have done Anna some, Hannah some justice. I hope that when I write about her and put it in ink, her descendants and others can find out about her and where she is and where she went. And the other last quote that I have is one from Richard Wright, who, as you know, wrote Native Son and Black Boy. But he also wrote a book called The Man Who Lived Underground that publishers would not publish for almost 100 years. And it is the story of a man named Fred Daniels who is accused of a crime and is forced into a false confession. 
he literally goes underground, like into the sewers, to get away from being, being incarcerated. And when Richard Wright wrote this, and people rejected it, he said that this was his work that had the most meaning in his life for him. This was the work where he felt the most creative in the process. This was the work that reflected his authentic self the most, even over his autobiography. What he writes about this book, and this is a quote, tradition is a dream, and he who does not dream cannot feel his past. And he who does not feel the past cannot feel the need for the future. A dream is tense, and tension is the prelude to action. When the Black Lives Matters movement happened here in Troy, there, it was tense, and there was tension, and there was action. And that action resonated for me all the way back to before the Civil War. Mm. The blueprint the founders, black founders, men and women of this city, had laid that became the NAACP, that became the Anti-Slavery Society, that became the Human Rights Commission. So to conclude, I'd like to thank the NAACP for having the little girl who wanted to know where all the black people were. <laughs> That was the final segment in a four-part series by Mr. Willie Terry on the Troy NAACP Branch Freedom Fund Breakfast held on October 7th, 2023. For those just tuning in, I'm your co-host, Lavender. And I'm H. Bosch Jr. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Network on WOOCLP 105 Point three FM Troy, New York, W O O G L P ninety two point seven FM Troy, W O O S L P ninety eight point nine FM Schenectady, and W O O A L P one oh six point nine FM Albany and streaming online at the media sanctuary.org. This program comes to you from the sanctuary from independent media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Okay, we go into our, our archives to hear part one in a multi-part series about a virtual forum in January 2021 on systemic racism in medicine titled unequal treatment. The unjust, de unjust death of Dr. Susan Moore, HMM correspondent, Connie Carey spoke with Dr. Merle Louise Patterson, one of the forum's organizers, about the forum and the work of her group. Take it away. Dr. Patterson, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. My pleasure. You are on the board of Physicians for a National Health Program. Can you tell me about that organization and your role? 
The organization Physicians for a National Health Program has been fighting for over 20 years for a single-payer system of payment of universal health care for the United States. We have chapters across the country. The largest chapters, I think, are probably New York and Chicago and maybe California. And I belong to the New York chapter. We are trying to both educate our fellow citizens and to win them over to the idea that if the government provided the payment to doctors and hospitals and nurses and other healthcare professionals for healthcare, and if we took the profit motive then out of healthcare, that that would then be a giant step in the direction of healthcare equity, both in terms of racial equity, as well as bridging the gap between urban and rural healthcare, because municipal hospitals, uh, private hospitals, hospitals in rural areas would all get the same amount of funding. And as you probably know, municipal hospitals and hospitals in rural areas have nowhere near the funding base that private hospitals um, have. That would be a giant step towards, as I said, bringing health care equity to the American populace. It's not the entire step, but it would be a giant first step. So that's what we've been fighting for. And to undemonize the notion that if the government is the source of payment, that somehow the quality of healthcare will be less, or you won't be able to see your doctor, or you'll have to wait to have your appendix taken out, that somehow that source of funding then will impact your access and the quality of the healthcare that you'd receive. And none of those things are actually true, are they? No, they're not. And when you look at measures of health and healthcare across countries, you'll see that, for instance, our infant mortality, our maternal mortality, our life expectancy is in fact less than many of the industrial countries, actually all of the industrial countries, but even beyond industrial countries, less than, for instance, little Cuba. They have better outcomes than we do. The organization held a forum, Unequal Treatment, the Unjust Death of Dr. Susan Moore. Can you tell our listeners what prompted this forum? The death of Dr. Susan Moore for me was like the final straw. So you know the the straw that finally broke the camel's back was no larger than any of the other straws. It's just that its added weight finally was enough to create an avalanche, the same as George Floyd's death, George Floyd's brutal murder in front of everyone became the catalyst for, was kind of the final act of of just rank, callous inhumanity that people just said, I've had enough. And for me, that was the death of Susan Moore. I, I just, I'd had enough. And so I said to myself, we have to do something. We have to begin to challenge systemic racism, not just talk about it, but we really have to take steps to begin to challenge systemic racism in medicine. We have to begin to force 
the uh, regulatory bodies that, are, that exist. For instance, the Joint Commissions on Hospital Accreditation. That body exists. It's a federal body that goes around the country and examines hospitals from top to bottom and then says, you have a right to be open or you don't. And you have a right to be open, but you need to improve this, this, and this. And we will come back and make sure that you have done those improvements. Otherwise, we will withdraw your accreditation and you cannot provide care to people. So I just felt that we needed to begin there to not only hold the individual doctor who may have provided or not provided the adequate care or the individual nurse who may have turned her back on the patient. Individual responsibility always exists, but it exists within a larger framework that those individuals are working in. And we needed to begin to deal with that larger framework. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm speaking with Dr. Mary Louise Patterson from Physicians for a National Health Program, New York Metro Chapter. I'm a Black woman. I also am a physician, retired now. And this woman was 52 years old with a 19-year-old son, and all she wanted was to be adequately treated. And being a physician, she knew what that required. And yet, being a Black woman, they wouldn't deliver it. Can you tell me a bit about the forum and what participants heard? We had a five-woman panel, four of whom were African-American, and it was just superb. So they were able to come at this issue, both in terms of just going through step-by-step step so the audience could understand what actually happened to Dr. Moore. So we're not just saying she was mistreated or, or, or maltreated and, and just summing it up that way, but actually walking people through what actually happened to her so that they could understand why we were calling this you know, medical abuse and frame it in the terms of healthcare delivery and the inequities in healthcare delivery between the private system and the public system. And we have two systems that are separate and totally unequal. And then Dr. Kamara Jones, who talked about the racism in medicine in general as a part of racism in the society that we live in since the, the delivery of healthcare functions within, within the society, uh, not outside of it. But people don't often think that there's going to be racism in healthcare because somehow doctors are not going to do that, or they're not going to be racist, or the system is not going to be racist because it's compassion, it's mercy, it's healing, the suffering, that somehow that's different than what happens in the rest of society. But obviously that's you know not the case. People will hear all of that, and it was, it was delivered in a, such a compelling fashion that if you walk into the discussion initially not convinced, thinking that this was just an isolated incident, you left that discussion understanding the scope of the problem. Where can folks learn more about what they can do? Folks can begin to talk to their doctors. They can begin to write letters, op-ed page letters to their local newspapers. They can call their local radio stations like yours and ask them to cover the issue. 
they can talk to friends and family and see if people have had incidences of uh, what they consider to be inequitable treatment or racist treatment and begin to discuss how they think they can handle that. Those are some of the ways that they can plug in. Of course, there are organizations. So if people go to their uh, search engines and they put in racism in medicine, up will pop a number of different options for plugging in to uh, this particular issue. But as patients, I think people can begin to think about the kind of care they get, how they get it, what they're paying for, and whether they think it's adequate. So it's not just racism in healthcare, but it's healthcare in general in this country. If their sense is that it's not what they think it should be or what they would like for it to be, to begin to think about how to make a change. Dr. Patterson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks very much, Corinne, for having me. I'm so happy that you were interested in focusing on this particular issue. That was part one of Corinne Carey's coverage from the archives of the virtual forum held in January of 2021 by New York Metro Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. You can find the full series and more on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Okay, in our next segment, Herman Melville's house at First Avenue and 114th Street in Lansenburg, Troy, New York, is the one-time home of the author of Moby Dick, Herman Melville, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Andrea Cunliffe takes a tour of the building with Lansenburg Historical Society, John Ward. Here we are at number 214th Street in Lansingburg. It's the Lansingburg Historical Society, which happens to be at the Herman Melville House. I'm so fortunate to have found you. And please, may I ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is John Ward. I'm retired, and uh, I'm trying to give back to the community I grew up in. And you grew up close by. Two blocks away. And you never knew never, about this? Never heard of it. Never heard of Herman Melville, not until I got to college. Uh, never knew that uh, Chester A. Arthur lived four blocks up the street. Never knew that Herman took surveying lessons and at the Lansingburg Academy, which became eventually the, the Lansingburg branch of the Troy Library, which I knew as a child. And I never knew that Chester A. Arthur, the former president, after graduating from Union, taught a law class at Lansingburg Academy. Fascinating. Yeah. I didn't even know. And Well, Melville wrote, you want to give us a rundown on what he wrote here. Right. I know he wrote Moby Dick. But... Omu and Taipei were written here. Omu. O-M-O-O and Taipei. T-Y-P-E-E. Yeah, those were the first novels he wrote. And those consisted of his adventures in the Pacific whaling when he had joined a whaling uh, a vessel out of out of Fairhaven, which is right across from New Bedford, Massachusetts, a big whaling uh, port. So he was a whaler. Well, of course, yes. Moby Dick. Well, yeah, yeah, uh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Wow. So he lived here with his mother, his mother, and his his siblings. There were seven, uh, eight altogether, including him. Yeah, they uh, 
they had originally lived in, well, they actually were from New York City originally. But during the summers, they would move out of the city to get away from the heat and all the diseases. Uh, and uh, they had friends and relatives up here, so they would come up here and visit. They eventually started a fur cap business uh, in Albany. Yes, they did that a lot. And in Catskill and up along yeah. the other side, too, in sure. the Catskill yeah. Mountains. Yeah, and they, uh, his father eventually dies in 1832, uh, his brother, his oldest brother, Gansvert, um, takes over the business in Albany. There's a fire. The business doesn't do well. The Panic of 1837. So uh, he declares bankruptcy in 1837. They move to here because the rents are much cheaper. Oh, really? there, there's a letter from his mother to her brother saying, you know, we're down to a half a barrel of, of uh, flour. Can you send us money for rent and food? Uh, his uncle was a, a banker in Albany. Mm-hmm. So the father... Alan. Alan, Alan. Alan. Yeah. He was without a job after his company burned down. His Well, he had, he had already died. Oh, he'd already passed. In 1832, oh. Alan dies. Oh, okay. okay. His oldest son, Gansford, takes over the business in 1832 and then has to declare bankruptcy in 1837 because of the, well, the the panic of 1837, which was devastating. Um, Huge, huge losses. Uh, If you read about it, and it was really due to a fire in New York City, which burned down a lot of insurance companies and a lot of banks. It's not something like 45 buildings burned. And that contributed to the panic of 1837. And, and hence they moved up here. Moved up well, here. it's not bad. You, yeah. He's got, you know, he's right on the river. It's sure. a beautiful location. Yeah. So how well, did they survive? Cheap. Right. Well, they all tried to do something. Uh, Herman, when he was here, tried to teach school in North Greenbush and also heading over to Bennington. There's a big farm called Calhoun's Farm, uh, and right next to Calhoun's farm, there's a historic marker that says, Herman Melville taught school here. So, oh, yeah. so it's an old, old building now, too. Well, no, that one's, it's gone. It's gone? Yeah, it's gone. But the yeah. locations. The locations. Are. Well, this building is fascinating, and we're standing in the dining room now. It's a pretty, yeah. pretty comfortable space, and the table's set here. I'm ready for lunch. I don't <laughs> think I'm going to get it today. I don't but, think so. But it feels so comfortable. Right. And there's yeah. a wonderful, you said, an Italianate... Um, Fireplaces yeah. that were added back in the 1860s right. when they changed the entranceway mm-hmm. and they changed the shape of the roof from uh, Dutch gambrel to uh, a gable roof. They added the front porch and turned that into the entrance. So was there originally a front porch that no. overlooked the... No. No. But no. they did have the space on the river. This, this river was... This was like the throughway. This was the mode of transportation for the river. The river, yeah, for goods and services. And all along here were shipbuilding uh, buildings, warehouses up the street at 116th Street and First Avenue. There's a brick house, and there is a tunnel underneath it to get to the river because these were all warehouses and all kinds of uses for merchants. And that's where they would store the goods. There's another house up at 118th and 1st, 
and that was owned by the Judsons. Uh, he was a coal and wool importer, and his office was across the street. So this was was not an elegant upper class no, neighborhood. No, it was no. A, a busy city street. It was a yes. Well, it wasn't all, a street, but all, a busy. All along the river was busy. Yes, yeah. As you go further up, houses became nicer, and then if you notice, particularly in Troy, the higher you go, the nicer the houses are because. This was all working class down here. And the river didn't smell so nice. Probably not, no. <laughs> Actually, as a child, it didn't smell great, as, particularly in the uh, summertime. Strange that, huh? Yeah. Well, one of my good friends had a boat. I had a car. We made a deal. I learned how to water ski in, in the Hudson. <laughs> we used to and go, you're still alive. I'm still alive to show, Yeah. <laughs> Well, tell me, is there anything remarkable in this room I should take a note well, of? Yeah, here. Now, this bookcase right here. Boy, that's a beauty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's... this was donated to us, uh-huh. and it was from the Pine factory. And Pine, this was his factory. Oh, it's beautiful. It's... Do we know that building? Yes. Standard it's just Man- down the road. Standard Manufacturing at 121st Street. Yes. And 2nd Avenue, yeah. Oh, and that's where this was created. Is that carved? His name was Pine, and he uh, started as carriage manufacturer. But then when the collars and cuffs came in, his fort was merging all the small collars and cuffs producers until he built this huge brand called the Lion Brand. And they made collars and cuffs, pajamas, uh, night clothes, and that's standard manufacturing. Now, his place on 2nd Avenue, across the street there, uh, on, on the same side as the Price Chopper and, and the former Burger King, which are both closed now, his home was called the Abbey, and it was beautiful. And that, uh, that's where this came from. Oh, it's yeah. fabulous. It's huge. It's yeah, what, about, oh. about eight feet long and five feet, six feet tall, with all the hand carving. Yeah. Big glass, big glass doors on it. Oh, lovely. Bookcases. Yes, these two bookcases. <gasps> oh, yes. On either side of the uh, fireplace. Now, that's when I said I thought that this was a door through and that they put a bookcase in front of it, but it's hey, not. No. <gasps> it's magnificent. Yeah. That's a good 10 feet tall. Yeah. Was that yeah. from the same man? No, no. These are from the Judson House. And the Judson House... Yes is right up here at 118th and uh, 1st Avenue. Well, Two actually, blocks uh, from here. Blocks. But, yeah. but this was built after because you said this neighborhood was not necessarily a very grand neighborhood. Well, he wanted a place right by his business. He was importing coal along the river. And cotton. Mm-hmm. And so. wool, yeah. So he so this is took, a, took a risk. Yeah. Boy, is that house open to the public? No. It's owned by a... a um, recalcitrant um, landlord who... Is this a piano? Who doesn't make much attempt at taking care of the property. Oh, that's a shame. And he lives in Jersey. Oh, right. Now, this is a pump organ. It's this, great. Yes, it was built it's around the 1990s, 1890s, donated by two uh, members of, of our uh, society who were both retired from the, uh, the military. In fact, she gave us that to that lamp. Oh, the lamp is yeah. exquisite. Yeah. It's, it's not a Tiffany, it's hand-painted. No. It's not, and the pump organ's not working. One of these days we'll have enough money to, 
to get it fixed, and my wife plays the piano, so I know she can play this. So this is a call-out to anybody who knows anything about pump play organs, pump organist. Or, or playing pump Help organs. us, right. help yes, us, help please. us. Well, this is a magnificent room. Yeah. And uh, just wonderful that you've been able to preserve it and keep it open to the public. Well, it's tough. We try to uh, we try to maintain it as, as best we can. Something, eight, you know, a seventeen eighty six house. Something's always breaking down or happening. So well, it's still standing. Yeah, right. Seeing the well, this is magnificent. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here. Check Sorry. out our check out our our Facebook page and check out our we have a website nancymcgregorhistorical.org and our Facebook page. This has been Andrea Kunla for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Again, that was Andrea's coverage of the home of Moby Dick author Herman Melville. You can find more information at melvillesociety.org or lansingburghistoricalsociety.org. Now we are joined by Laura Brown PT, who owns the Capital Region therapeutic massage welcome to the hudson mohawk magazine laura first time yes sir thank you for having me i'm very excited great let's give her a hand guys yes welcome <laughs> welcome welcome okay um well i'll start off the first question um what is massage therapy what is massage therapy it's the best thing you're not having <laughs> <laughs> well i'm on my way Okay. Well, massage therapy, I like to tell people is muscle therapy. We should actually rename it muscle therapy because I think more people would get a better idea of what it is. It's not what we see on TV. I mean, it can be, it can be just the relaxation spa experience, but it's not only that. So I, I like, I try to give people the example of you would never say there's one kind of doctor. There's right, hundreds right, of different absolutely. kinds of doctors, and there's so many different kinds of massage too. So, massage is good for your skin, your muscles, your joints. It's good for your your just mental state. So, and it and it's good, and it's good for you, right. <laughs> and it's nice. <laughs> so, Sounds like oatmeal. It's good, and it's the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I like oatmeal. <laughs> right, me too. So um, I'll ask one other question, and I'll let my co-host chime in. How is it different from traditional medicine? Well, it just it works very nicely with traditional medicine, but in massage, we don't diagnose, we don't um, prescribe. So uh, what we do is sort of there are problems that we can help with, insofar as supporting the the person's body and supporting them in their health issues. And there are um, issues that we can really, really have an impact and straighten out for them. So uh, be it soft tissue injury, that's our forte. Um, If someone has, you know, um, stenosis, that is something that they will have after their massage. We're not going to take the stenosis away, but those supporting muscles that get uh, very painful. And, um, um, I'm also a PT. So it's a little, it's a little bit of a, of a bonus because I can see when people are in pain and they start compensating with their posture and how they move, we get secondary problems because of that. So we don't cure the stenosis, but we make them feel better for a while. And, and those compensatory 
problems that they've developed, um, we can sort of help them out so we can make their lives a lot better. That actually leads into another question, uh, which is like, how, what got you into this practice? And you say you're both a PT and a massage therapist? Yes, I just decided in seventh grade I wanted to be a PT. I shouted our PT at the local hospital and I said, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. And <laughs> so I went to PT school straight out of high school and we had about half a day of massage therapy. And I was really disappointed because uh, once, once we did that, I kind of fell in love with it, but I kind of put it in a box and put it over here in the back of my mind. And when I got out and started practicing little by little, I found out, um, I just found myself doing less hands-on work. And I wanted to do the hands-on work because me, like everybody, I'm a sucker for instant gratification. And it just seems if you can put your hands on something and work it out, um, we get, we really get somewhere. So uh, that's fun. And who doesn't want their instant gratification? So I said, you know, I've got to go to massage school because we're just less restricted, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because they walk in, they want a massage, we do the massage, they feel better and they walk out. And it's, it's a, it's a great life. I, now that I do massage, I don't work a day in my life. <laughs> How about that? And if you love what you do, it's not considered work. That's right. right. That's right. So um, here's another quick question. Um, how long is the average massage and how many massages do you give a day? And do you have to keep yourself in some type of physical strength and condition to do that? Because you're standing on your feet all day and you're using your hands. Yes. Yes. And I'm glad you asked me that because um, when I was 28, it was no big deal. And now that I'm 51, I've got to be a lot more conscious of <laughs> all these things. So um, yes, it does, it does behoove us to be in shape and to work out and lift weights and stretch, 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 stretch. And uh, what we do um, during the, the job, which everyone should do during their job is we're, we're very mindful of our body mechanics and how we're delivering the massage. Um, now, people get anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours. So I'd say on wow. average, the most popular is the one hour massage. So okay. I would say on a good day, I'm doing five of those. At this, at wow. 51, a good day is five one hour clients. If I, I, I tried to somebody a two hour massage, they probably would roll over and say, hey, you just fell asleep on me. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes Get they do, and that's back. a compliment. <laughs> yes, that is amazing. Absolutely. I have a I have a question, Laura. So, can you talk about the difference between massage therapy and general physical therapy, um, and how uh, your day to day work might differ in those two realms? Oh, sure. Well, you know, a physical therapist, depending on the location they work at, they're they're focus all day is very broad because if they're um, in outpatient, they might be doing, uh, they might be helping a stroke patient regain some function this half hour and the next half hour, they might be helping someone with um, a neck injury or, and then the next half hour, they, they may be seeing someone with plantar fasciitis. So they're doing so much. PT is very comprehensive. So if it hurts and it doesn't move right, those people get sent to PT. So they're dealing with so many different types of diagnoses and they're 
their job usually is to get people out of pain, get them to move better and, and more, most importantly, depend. and again, it, it, it's hard to answer because it depends on what type of environment they're working in. They're, they want to get their patient as independent as possible, as safely as possible in their home or their job. So that's their job. So they may be having to get people stronger. They might have to uh, regain balance with their patients. Their, their patients may have had an amputation and, and they're learning to walk with their prosthetic limb. I mean, it's so there's so much to PT. It's uh, they could be doing just about anything. And with massage, your focus just went, but just got narrowed and you're laser focused on um, the soft tissue in front of you and making sure that is as mobile as possible. Because if you're, if your skin and your fascia and your muscle aren't supple, um, it just makes gaining those other goals harder. Great. So massage I questions um, I want to ask before we close out real quick. Um, can you tell us about um, the businesses, Capital Region and Therapeutic Massages? And um, how did you come to own both of them? And was it a challenge? You know, the finances and all of that. You know, yeah, I mean, we're never done. <laughs> we're never done. So I have my business is Capital Region Therapeutic Massage. And my other business is Laura Brown PT, because that's the business that does the therapeutic laser and the Calmere pain mitigation therapy for nerve pain. And so there are actually two separate entities. And um, yeah, it's an everyday, it's an everyday thing. It's and it's something we don't really learn in school. So it's been a real adventure. All right. So where's your office located and where can people get more information about you? I am located in Clifton Park. I have an excellent location. I'm right in the St. Peter's campus, right behind Building B in the rear entrance of Building B on 146 in Clifton Park. And I would encourage people to visit my website, capitalregiontherapeuticmassage.com, because they can get a lot of information about the three different things that I offer. We're going to have awesome. to end it right there. Thank you yes, so much, we, Laura. We are out of time, but thank by. you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Okay, again, that was Laura Brown, PT, owner of Capital Region Therapeutic Massage. And thank you again, Laura, for joining. Yes. Thanks for having me. Great And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed the, this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm your co-host, Lavender. And I'm H. Bosch Jr. Our engineer was Kaylin McPherson. And to, um, yep. And I uh, just want to say thank you to all our volunteers and uh, the team. Uh, like I said, uh, Team um, WOOC. And thank you for all they do. Um, Lavender. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, hold on. And we want to also thank volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episodes are Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, uh, Connie, Carrie, Andrea. Cunliffe and your co-host Lavender, and of course myself, H. Bosch Jr. That's Corinne Carey uh, okay. from the archives. Um, yes, and we want to hear from you, listeners. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next okay. time. And uh, let me close out.
All right, dance like there's no one watching, sing like there's no one listening, love like you've never been hurt, and last but not least, you better live like it's heaven on earth. This is the show. I am the host, H. Bosch Jr. Until next time, thank you for tuning in.